Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Eva Kaur is a Holocaust survivor and victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. Mengele was given the name Angel of Death because of his position as an SS physician in charge of selecting which prisoners uh, to the camp would be, new prisoners to the camp would be killed or selected for forced labor. Kaur and her sister launched a search for other twins who survived Mengele's experiments and located 122 individual survivors. She founded Candle's Holocaust Museum in Indiana. In 1995, she made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty to those individuals responsible for the Holocaust. What I find amazing that that forgiveness is an individual act of self-healing and liberation and empowerment. Her act of forgiveness inspired some and angered others. Eva Kaur will give a talk on forgiveness titled Encountering Dr. Mengele on April 11th, Thursday evening at Utah State University. That uh, talk is at 6.30 p.m. in Old Main, Room 225. It's part of a symposium series on the Holocaust presented by the USU Religious Studies Program. Eva Kaur joins me for the hour on Access Utah Today. This is a conversation recorded a week or so ago. Uh, from her Candles Holocaust Museum in Indiana. Uh, Eva Kaur was born in a small village in Transylvania, which uh, at the time was alternately claimed by Hungary and Romania. Her father was Alexander, her mother Jaffa. She had two older sisters, Edith and Alice, and a twin sister, Miriam. Her father was a landowner and farmer. It was a peaceful life, says Eva Kaur, until the arrival of the Nazis. And as we pick up the story, they have been loaded onto cattle cars heading who knows where. It was the end of the third day when the train stopped. We asked for water, and the answer came back in German. I was 10 years old, and I instantly understood what happened. We have crossed the border into Germany. Our Hungarian guards have been changed to German. And that meant for all of us that the end was near. People in our cattle car were praying and crying, and the train moved on. We were in the cattle car for another eight hours. The train stopped again, and we again asked for water, and this time there was no answer in any language, which I concluded this must be the final stop, and I was right. We heard a lot of Germans yelling orders outside, and then the cattle car doors Swang open, a lot of people, thousands of people poured out onto a little strip of land called the selection platform. My mother grabbed my twin sister and me by the hand. We were her youngest children, and she hoped that as long as she could hold on to us, that somehow she could protect us. Everything was moving very fast, and as I looked around, on that confusion, on that selection platform, I was maybe there 10 minutes when I realized that my father and two older sisters disappeared in the crowd. I never, ever saw them again. So holding on to my mother's arm, hand, as a Nazi was running and yelling in German, twins, twins, we did not volunteer any information. He noticed us because we were dressed alike and we looked very much alike. And he demanded to know from my mother if we were twins. And my mother asked 
is that good? And the Nazi nodded yes, and my mother said yes. At that moment, another Nazi came, pulled my mother in one direction. We were pulled in the opposite direction. We were crying. She was crying. All I remember was my mother's arm stretched out in despair as she was pulled away. I never got to say goodbye to her, but I did not really realize that this would be the last time that we would see her. And all that took 30 minutes from the time we stepped down from the cattle car and Miriam and I no longer had a family. We were all alone. And all this was done to us for one single reason, that we were born Jewish and we didn't really understand why that was a crime. There's no way you could understand, right? No. Now, the reason you were pulled out as twins, unfortunately, is is uh, because of Dr. Joseph Mengele, right? And, uh, right. Yeah, and, and, and genetic well, experiments. Yeah, well, we didn't know anything. We became part of a group of 13 sets of little girls and one mother who, by miracle, was permitted to stay with her daughters. So there were 13 sets of little twin girls. Somewhere else on that selection platform, there were twin boys, but I was only involved and able to cope with my own little problem. We were marched to a huge building. Our clothes were removed. We sat naked for most of the day until late in the afternoon when our processing began. We, the twins, were given short haircuts. The mother's head was shaved. Our dresses were returned with a huge oil-painted red cross on the back, and the mother was given striped prison uniform. So to have our own clothes and our own hair was a privilege that we were granted. Then they lined us up for registration and tattooing, and when my turn came, I decided that I would give them as much trouble as I possibly could. Four people restrained me two Nazis and two women prisoners. While they heated a gadget, it looked like a writing pen with a needle at the end, and they heated the needle over the flame of a lamp. When it got hot, they dipped it into ink, and then they burned into my left arm, dot by dot. The capital letter A, dash, 7063. Miriam became... Capital A dash seven zero six four. Auschwitz was the only Nazi camp that tattooed its inmates. My husband is a survivor of four years in Buchenwald. He does not have a tattoo. Once we were processed, we were marched throughout the camp. We arrived at a barrack, a modular horse barn, no windows. The windows were on the elevated part of the roof. Inside, everything looked filthy and crude. Three-story high bunk beds covered with a thin straw mattress and a dirty blanket. Miriam and I were given a bunk bed on the bottom, and we have not slept or stretched out in five days. So we thought maybe we could sleep a little bit, but human beings cannot function after such a traumatic day. As I was tossing and turning, I noticed something big and dark moving on the floor, and I began counting, one, two, three. By the time I got to five, I jumped up screaming, mice, mice, 
coming from a small village, a f- big farm, I have often encountered mice, and I was always scared of them. But a girl from the top bunk bed said, stupid kid, these are not mice, they are rats. And you better get used to them because they are everywhere. And now we couldn't even try to fall asleep. So Miriam and I went to the latrine. As I entered the place, there on the filthy latrine floor, there are the scattered corpses of three children. I have never, ever seen anybody dead before. But to me, the message was clear that that could happen to Miriam and me unless I did something to prevent it. So I made a silent pledge that I will do anything and everything within my power to make sure that Miriam and I shall not end up on that filthy latrine floor. From the moment we left the latrine, I did everything instinctively and everything instinctively right. I never let any doubt or fear enter my mind. I... uh, Never let go of that image of Miriam and me walking out of that camp alive until the day we were liberated. Is that a lesson that you have kept with you for the years since liberation? Well, absolutely. Hmm. I realize, and I talk to young people today, they seem to have so many problems. So, And I also raised two children ourselves, that growing up is very hard. And it's hard everywhere, even in the United States. But what I tell kids, I did not give up on my life in Auschwitz. If you give up, nothing will happen. But if you have any difficulty, all you have to tell yourself, I am not going to give up on myself. I am going to keep trying until I figure out something that will work for me. And It always does. That is the way you accomplish anything in life, by not giving up, by hammering away at it, and you come up with a solution. That is a very important lesson for everybody, because later on when I talk about the lesson, I will tell you about that. Uh, so tell me about these, uh, this is just horrible to, to talk about these experiments that Dr. Mangalo was performing on on you and the, the other twins. Well, the, I was involved in two types of experiments, but that was not the whole scope. Because if twins were older than 16, or they were in a reproductive age, I realized from what I have been able to talk to other twins, because we do not have any data. The Nazi data of Mengele's experiments disappeared. Anyway, I was taken, Miriam and I were taken three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, to a lab that I call the observation lab. There they would remove our clothes. We would stand or sit for eight hours a day. Every part of my body was measured compared to charts and compared to my twin sister. These experiments were not dangerous, but they were unbelievably demeaning. And even in Auschwitz, I couldn't cope with that. They were treating me like a nobody, like a nothing. So the only way that I could cope with it was by blocking it out of my mind. Therefore, 
All I remember about those experiments that they lasted a very long time. In alternate days, on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we would be taken to another lab that I call the blood lab. There they would tie both of my arms, take a lot of blood from my left arm. At the same time, they would give me a minimum of five injections into my right arm. And those were the deadly ones. To the best of my knowledge, they were germs, diseases, and drugs. After one of those injections, I became very ill with a very high fever. It had to be August because my skin was burning from the sun, yet I was still trembling. Both my legs and arms were swollen and very painful, and I had huge red patches throughout my body. The next visit to the blood lab, they did not tie my arms for injections and blood taking. Instead of that, they measured my fever, and I knew I was in trouble. I was taken to the hospital, which was another barrack, but in this case, it was filled with people who looked more dead than alive. Next morning, Dr. Mengele and four other doctors came in to study my case, but they didn't study it. They never examined me. They just looked at the fever chart, and the Mengele declared, laughing sarcastically, he said, too bad, she is so young, she has only two weeks to live. I knew that Dr. Mengele was right, but I refused to die. I made a second silent pledge that I will prove Dr. Mengele wrong. I will survive and be reunited with my sister. For the following two weeks, I have only one clear memory. I remember often waking up on the barrack floor. I was crawling because I no longer could walk. And I was crawling to reach a faucet with water at the other end of the barrack. Because this barrack was not allocated any food, nor water, nor medicine. As I was crawling, I would fade in and out of consciousness, and I kept telling myself, I must survive, I must survive. After two weeks, my fever broke, and then I immediately felt a lot stronger, and it took me another three weeks before my fever chart showed normal, and I was released and reunited with the other twins and my twin sister, Miriam. But Miriam looked very sick. She looked like the living dead. In Auschwitz, in my opinion, dying was the easiest thing. Living was a full-time job. And sometimes the difference between living and dying is people who gave up their struggle to live one more day because that is all we could do. And they would sit staring to space aimlessly. And that staring was scary to me because I know she gave up on her own struggle to live one more day. When I asked her, what happened? What have they done to you? She refused to talk. She said she couldn't talk about it, and we never talked about Auschwitz until 1985. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Eva Kaur. She's a Holocaust survivor and victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. 
Coroner's sister launched a search for other vict- uh, twins who survived uh, Mengele's experiments. They located 122 individual survivors, and she founded Candles Holocaust Museum in Indiana. Uh, by the way, org, I believe, is the website. In 1995, Eva Corr made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty to those individuals responsible for the Holocaust. That act of forgiveness inspired some and angered others. She'll give a talk on forgiveness titled Encountering Dr. Mengele on April 11th, this Thursday at Utah State University, 6.30 p.m., Old Main, Room 225. Everyone is invited. That's a part of a symposium series on the Holocaust presented by the USU Religious Studies Program. And she's joining me for the hour. This uh, conversation recorded uh, a week or so ago from her Holocaust uh, Museum. Uh, coming up in the next segment of the program, we'll find out what happened to Eva Kor's twin sister, Miriam, and some other uh, survivors of Holocaust as we go along. And we'll uh, talk about reaction to her act of forgiveness. More coming following a break. Waste not. Water your plants deeply, but less frequently to encourage deep root growth and drought tolerance. Another conservation tip, use a commercial car wash that recycles water. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Let's switch places. We'll be the listeners. And you tell us how it is. We've heard a lot about Utah's air quality, but we haven't heard about it from you. What does it feel like to live with air pollution? Go to upr.org source and share your experience. Utah Public Radio is partnering with the Public Insight Network to report on public health effects of air pollution in our community. You start telling. We'll start listening at upr.org source. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking for the hour with Holocaust survivor Eva Kaur. She was a victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. Her father, Alexander, and mother, Jaffa, and her older sisters, Edith and Alice, were uh, killed at uh, Auschwitz. She and her twin sister, Miriam, survived because they were uh, selected for those experiments. Many uh, died of those twins. Uh, she survived. She and her uh, twin sister Miriam launched a search for sur- other survivors, and we'll get into some of that uh, history. And Eva Kaur, before the break, was talking about uh, how she and her sister Miriam uh, never really talked about what happened to them until 1985. In 1985, I again asked Miriam, do you remember that I was taken to the hospital? She said, yes. I said, what happened to you? Well, I was in the hospital. She said, well, for the first two weeks, they she was on the Nazi doctor surveillance 24 hours a day. They were waiting for something to happen. She didn't know what that was because they didn't tell her, and she didn't know if whatever they were waiting for happened or it did not happen. And I told her it didn't happen because it was the same two weeks that Mangala said, I would die. Would I have died? Miriam would have been rushed to Mengele's lab, killed with an injection to the heart. And then Mengele would have done the comparative autopsies. I spoiled the experiment. I survived. And Miriam was not killed. According to the Auschwitz records, they had 
signed some papers, and she took us with her. So we were with her about nine months, and then we got back to Romania, and she put us on a train to our village where there was nobody returned. There were only three crumpled pictures on a bedroom floor, and that was all that was left of my family. Then we were taken in by an aunt who lost all her family, and life in Romania after the war, people cannot imagine, but there was such poverty, so little food, that, and freedom was just a slogan because the communists took over. And many Jews were very scared because many Jews were wealthy, and with the proletariat taking over, they were arrested and taken away in the middle of the night. And the only reason that we were not accused of anything, because we were war orphans. I mean, nothing was, nothing seemed to be working very well. And so in 19... In 1950, after trying to get our visa for two years, they wouldn't give it to us because we were young, and the communists wanted young people. And after two years, we got our visas. They took everything that we had, my father's land away, our, the home that we lived with my aunt, everything we had to sign over to them. And they permitted us to take nothing but the clothes on our back. So we arrived in Israel June 19th, 1950, wearing three dresses and the winter coat, because I stood in line with Miriam. We stood in line for 20 hours before they opened the store, and then a riot broke out. So we would have matching and winter clothes, because we didn't have any winter clothes after we got back from the camp. So I was not going to leave that there. In Israel, Miriam and I were taken to an agricultural school where we learned to work the land and went to school for hours a day. And then when we turned 18, we were drafted into the Israeli army. Miriam studied and became a nurse. I became a draftsman in the engineering corps, and I stayed in the army for eight years, reaching the rank of sergeant major. In 1960, I met on a blind date and married a tourist from United States from Terre Haute, Indiana, who came to Israel to meet with his brother. He, my husband, was liberated in Buchenwald by an American lieutenant colonel from Terre Haute, Indiana, and he never, ever wanted to live anywhere but where his liberator lived. So that is the way I arrived from Tel Aviv to Terre Haute, which I think always is a pretty big jump. That is that is a big jump. Uh, Michael Kaur was his name, right? Right. So uh, you begin your life in, in America. I think you had uh, some children. Yeah, I mean, I was never... I don't know what normal is, because what most people call normal... I didn't... I couldn't read English when I got here. Going to the grocery store was a whole challenge. When I got pregnant, for instance, my husband was going to be this magnanimous father and husband. He had never been to a grocery store before. He always ate in restaurants. So I made him a list to uh, buy at the grocery store. And I was looking 
in Hebrew and English dictionary, but translating, and I ended up on my list with a strange item, scarlet cucumbers. <laughs> and my husband came back an hour later and said, well, the store manager told me that they only have green ones. <laughs> but Stephen, you don't know the language. I must have accidentally looked at another word, but I didn't know what the difference was. <laughs> So I went with him to the grocery store, and I showed him I wanted pickles. In Hebrew, that is two words. And what it would have been correct if I would have found sour cucumbers. So life was a challenge all around, all around. There was (laughs) nothing easy. So I don't know what easy is because... It's never been normal. What on earth is normal for most people? My children, for instance, would go to a birthday party, and then they had their birthdays, and they say, well, Mommy, where is our grandma and grandpa? We went to Joey's birthday party. He had his grandmothers and grandfathers there. How come we don't have any? So we were three years old. I tried to explain to them that there were bad people called the Nazis who killed their grandparents. Well, it was, for a while, everything they accepted, but they realized that I was different than the other mothers. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Eva Kaur, who's a Holocaust survivor and victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. As we go along, we'll talk about her founding her Candles Holocaust Museum in Indiana, her search for other Mengele twins, and especially her personal declaration of amnesty to those individuals responsible for the Holocaust. Her act of forgiveness inspired some and angered others. Eva Kaur is coming to Utah State University this week on Thursday in the evening, 6.30, Old Main, room 225. She'll give a talk on forgiveness titled Encountering Dr. Mengele. That's a part of a series on the Holocaust presented by the USU Religious Studies Program. And the website for the Candles Holocaust Museum is candlesholocaustmuseum.org. I wonder if you could tell me about the the beginning of of Candles. Apparently, 1978, miniseries The Holocaust, and you started wondering what happened to the to the other children. Correct. I wondered. I had the pictures, and the reason that I wondered was I couldn't find any detail of our experiment, and Miriam was already very sick. And I wondered what has been done to us. So I thought maybe if I could find these children who were liberated with us, that we could have a gathering and we could piece together our memories, get a better understanding of what was done to us. But I had no names, no addresses. There was no Internet. And I didn't know which direction to turn. I thought that my best hope was you in the media any media, any communication. So what I started doing, writing letters to, if I would read the newspaper, I would write down the reporter's name. If I listened to radio, I would write down the reporter's name, same with the television, and then try to find their addresses and tell them who I was and what I was trying to find. Could they please publicize the idea that I was looking for these children? And if nobody really responded, and not much happened. So 
wasn't until December of 1983 when suddenly I thought to myself, what if I formed an organization and made myself president? Maybe I could impress them because I was just Eva Core survivor. There wasn't much attention paid to what I was doing. And this is the way that I put together the organization, incorporated it in Indiana in 1984, and I told my sister that she would be vice president, and with her help and my brother-in-law, my husband's brother that he came to visit in Israel, um, she put in an article, he was a journalist, and he put in an article in the front page center in Mariv, and that brought within one week 80 telephone calls with 80 names. And uh, my sister said, now I have the names, you come and talk to these people because I don't know what you want. And then we, I flew to Israel and I told them that I would like to go back to Auschwitz. I think we need to know and show the world where we were and find out for ourselves, verify that that place really existed. And so that is the way the organization started. It is, we had names from 80 people, and by the time we went to Auschwitz in 1985, January of 85, NBC was decided to allocate a crew, but we had 122 names from 10 countries and four continents. So it was not an easy organization to try to manage. But uh, we went to Auschwitz and the world press followed us and the stories became better known. But then they found these bones in Embu, Brazil in June of 1985. And nobody was interested in the story of the twins. Yet we were left with the same problem that we had before. So, and these bones were were thought to be those of Dr. Mengele. That was the the official report is, but in my opinion, they were not. I wonder if you could. Uh, this is remarkable. Of course, it got a lot of press. Nineteen ninety five, fifty years after liberation, you returned to Auschwitz, and you you forgive. Actually, we didn't get a lot of press. Oh, that you didn't. You didn't. Amazing. Time. We didn't. I, I, I would have thought you would. This is this is remarkable. No, actually, what we did there with Dr. Munch, we had at least three hundred pages of press releases, handed them to people, and there were only three reporters. From uh, one, a French reporter, one, an Israeli reporter, and one, a German reporter, who came to the press conference. The Israeli reporter wrote a nasty, scathing article about me that I am walking in Auschwitz hand-in-hand with a Nazi murderer. The German reporter was Bruno Scherer, who wrote a nasty article about Dr. Munch, putting in his home address, and Dr. Munch's house was firebombed. And then I talked to Bruno Scherer, and I said, how dare you do that? He said, well, I got even for my grandfather, who was an Auschwitz survivor. And the French was also a very alarmist report, and the French underground was going to, and they actually filed 
the resistance movement in French fired lawsuits against Dr. Munch. So that is all I got in the press for that big, great event. Two adversaries meeting as friends. You're listening to Access U-Time, Tom Williams. We're hearing the story of Eva Kaur, who's a Holocaust survivor and victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. In 1995, she made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty to those individuals responsible for the Holocaust. We're going to be hearing about that coming up in the next segment. That act of forgiveness inspired some and angered others. Eva Kaur is giving a talk on forgiveness titled Encountering Dr. Mengele. That'll be happening on Thursday evening, 6.30 p.m., Old Main 225, free and open to the public. It's part of a symposium series on the Holocaust presented by the USU Religious Studies Program. More with Eva Kaur following the break. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Eva Kaur, Holocaust survivor and victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. In 1995, she made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty for those individuals responsible for the Holocaust. Eva Kaur is giving a talk on forgiveness titled Encountering Dr. Mengele. That's Thursday evening at USU, 6.30 p.m., Old Main Room 225. It's part of a symposium series on the Holocaust. You do get interest, I'm sure, in this, because it is remarkable at that point you, you forgave the Nazis. I forgave the Nazis, and I will tell you that that idea of forgiveness, what people must understand, that it has nothing to do with Mengele. It has nothing to do with the Nazis, with Hitler. It has to do, it, it does not do anything to help them. If it helps them, so be it but it helps the victim. The world is filled with victims that are never helped and never healed. This is a very simple idea, and the way I came up with it, not that I ever even thought about it for a moment, I stumbled on it when I met Dr. Munch at his home in Germany. It will be this August, it will be 20 years ago, and he treated me with tremendous respect, kindness, and consideration. I really went there in the hope that I could find out more information about our experiments because he was a friend of Mangala's. That is what I was interested in. Well, he knew nothing about our experiments. But because he was polite, caring, and kind, I felt comfortable in his company. And out of the blues, I hear myself say, Dr. Munch, by any chance, do you know anything about the gas chambers in Auschwitz? Because, of course, there are the revisionists who say there was no Holocaust, there were no gas chambers. And this was my first and only opportunity to talk to a Nazi. And he immediately said, this is a nightmare that I live with every single day of my life. And went on describing the operation of the gas chamber because he was stationed 
outside looking through a people as people were dying. I have never heard about it. He said, people, the Zyklon D, which is pellets, looks like pellets of white gravel, were dropped from canisters from the roof outside. They fell to the floor, operated like dry ice, and the gas was rising from the floor. People in the gas chamber or shower room, they were going to take a shower, but of course it was a gas chamber. They're trying to get away from the rising gas, climbing on top of each other, the strongest one ending up on the top of the pile. So when everybody was dead, there was a little mountain of intermingled bodies. The people on the top of the pile were the strongest ones. So when Dr. Munch saw that they were st- they stopped moving, he knew that everybody was dead, and he signed one death certificate stating no names, just 1,000, 2,000, or 3,000 people. I never heard about that. To me, that was extremely important information. So I said to Dr. Munch that I was going to Auschwitz in 1995 to celebrate 50 years of the liberation of the camp, and would he please come with me and sign a document at the ruins of the gas chamber where it happened and in the witnesses, in the company of at least six witnesses. And he immediately said yes. So I got back to Terre Haute, Indiana, very excited that I will have an original document signed not by a survivor, not by a liberator, but actually by a Nazi who witnessed it. And I was very determined to thank him in some fashion or form. But I had no idea how does one thank a Nazi doctor. And in my efforts, I tried, first of all, to go to a Hallmark shop and read thank you cards to get some ideas, but that was a waste of time. Then I went back to my own life lesson of never giving up, and for the next 10 months, when I was cooking, cleaning, or driving the car, I kept asking myself, how can I thank this Nazi doctor? And after 10 months, a simple idea popped into my head. How about a letter of forgiveness from me to Dr. Munch? I knew immediately that this was a meaningful gift for Dr. Munch, but what I discovered for myself was life-changing. I discovered that I, the little victim from Auschwitz, had the power to forgive. No one could give me that power, and no one could take it away. It was mine to use it in any way I could. Up to that time, I always reacted to what other people did to me. This was the first time I initiated something on my own, to write a letter of forgiveness. It took me another four months to write that letter because I worked through a lot of pain. And then it occurred to me that somebody even might read my letter, and my letter is available on our website under www.candlesholocaustmuseum.org. Click on Education Center. The next paragraph will come up 
will be letters to the world, as there are Dr. Munch's documentation of the gas chamber and my letter of forgiveness, which I call Declaration of Amnesty. And so I met with a former English professor in trying to correct my English spelling because English is a difficult language, and I definitely have trouble with it. And then she said to me, now, Eva, that's very nice that you are forgiving this Dr. Munch, but you really need to think about forgiving Dr. Mengele. Just do me a favor. When you go home tonight, just visualize that you are talking to Mengele and you are telling him that you forgive him and see how it will make you feel. And I, I did that, and I realized immediately, I said, wow, I even have the power to forgive the God of Auschwitz, because Mengele was God in Auschwitz. And once I decided that I could forgive Mengele, and I was not hurting anybody, I decided to forgive everybody who has ever hurt me. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm talking uh, for the hour with Eva Kaur, a Holocaust survivor, victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz, and as we've been hearing famously, uh, issued a personal declaration of amnesty for those responsible for the Holocaust. That act of forgiveness inspired some and angered others. And Eva Kaur will give a talk on forgiveness titled Encountering Dr. Mengele Thursday evening, 6.30 p.m. on the Utah State University campus, Old Main, room 225. Everyone is welcome. It's part of a symposium series on the Holocaust presented by the USU Religious Studies Program. And uh, my guest for the hour, by the way, as Eva Kaur mentioned, her website, candlesholocaustmuseum.org. I imagine you have gotten some reaction, uh, a range of reaction, admiration, of course, uh, uh, wonderment, but also the criticism. How can you forgive something so awful? Everybody says, how can you forgive? And when I tell them, I don't know if Mengele ever found out about it, knows about it. It does not matter. But what I find amazing that that forgiveness is an individual act of self-healing and liberation and empowerment. I have power over my life today and tomorrow. What they did to me almost 70 years ago no longer stops me from being the person I want to be. And if we want to ever change the world, from victim to victimizer, victimizer to victim, I call forgiveness a seed for peace. People who are at peace with themselves do not want to hurt anybody. But people who are angry because they have been victimized always want to lash out at other people. So anger is a seed for war. Forgiveness is a seed for peace. And I would like anybody who hears this report, I need all the help that you can give me to sow those seeds of peace throughout the world. What generally, we've talked about some of the lessons. You've, you've talked about your, your journey to forgiveness, talk about never giving up. What are, what are some of the other lessons you well, take? Well, the other lessons that I talk about it is um, how do we deal with prejudice? Because one of the reasons that Hitler rose to power, actually. The main number one reason was, of course, the bad economy, the great the worldwide depression. And he said to his fellow 
I mean, otherwise people wouldn't have voted for such a dingaling like Adolf Hitler. And he said to his fellow countrymen, you don't have food, you don't have jobs, you don't have hope, and it's all the fault of the Jews. Because if something goes wrong, they have to blame it on somebody. And the Jews were always picked on for centuries, for for uh, since at least 2,000 or 3,000 years. So we were the automatic scapegoats. And so as I look around in the world, I think that prejudice is still with us. So on my little bookmarker, when people buy any of the books from the museum, we include a bookmarker, and this is what it says. Lessons of the Holocaust by Eva Moses Core. One, never ever give up. Two, prevent prejudice by judging people only on their actions and content of their character. Three, forgive your worst enemy. It will heal you inside and it will set you free. Four, give your parents an extra hug and an extra kiss for children who had no parents and who have no parents now. Five, each of us has an obligation and an important part to play in repairing the world. In Hebrew, there is a saying, tikkun olam, which means repair the world. And let tikkun olam, or repair the world, begin with me. And I believe that forgiveness is not only repairing the world of the victim, but it helps repair the rest of the world. And I also call forgiveness to other things. It's a gift I give myself, not the perpetrators. And if you want to have the best revenge against the perpetrators, forgive them. Because what they did no longer has a hold over your life. Finally, uh, Mrs. Cora, I wonder, um, you found 122 uh, other uh, Mengele twins. I wonder uh, how how they're doing, I guess, a broad range of outcomes in their lives. Oh, what, my how, goodness. how are they doing? Yeah, they are, they are not even willing to talk to me, most of them. Why? Why? Because I forgave the Nazis, and they say that that is somehow against them, and I have asked repeatedly, how does my forgiveness does anything against them. Uh, I went to Israel. We set up a fund at the museum, and I contributed quite a lot to that fund to try to interview all the twins who still are functioning, who have no mental problems, and could tell us what they remember. So I went to Israel December 2nd, 2011, and I set up 10 appointments. One of my board members, who is an Israeli, went ahead of time to, to actually call them and set up the appointment. And she called me from Israel. She said, nobody is willing to enter the phone. I don't know what that means, but somebody must have talked to them, and they refused to enter the phone. I told them who I was. So... It was three days before departure. We went ahead because I couldn't cancel it. There was, I had a person coming from New York who actually was on her way already to the place we were going. She first had to go to Atlanta to take her daughter 
to stay with her mother. And so we, there were too many. And the two reporters, NBC reporters here from Terre Haute, who had everything allocated for going. So I went ahead and actually I ambushed them at their homes. I didn't call because there was no use calling. And we succeeded in getting three interviews. Nobody would tell me why they didn't want to talk. Oh, they didn't remember too much or any of these things. One of the twins actually was very eager to talk. He, I did not get a hold of him when I was in the United States, so I found him later on. And he has also forgiven the Nazis, which to me was very rewarding to realize. And he said the reason that all the other Mangala twins are angry because they are envying you and they are envying me. They don't want know what to do. They do not know how to rise above the... I said, I'm trying to tell them. Don't tell anybody they have to do it. But actually, if you understand, if anybody would try... And it's not a religious thing. They are trying to tell me that this is a Christian religion. I am Jewish, I am not Christian, and I can forgive, and the sky has not fallen in. So, actually, Jews have a very important holiday. It's called Yom Kippur. So that's not that foreign to Jewish religion, yet nobody is practicing it. And so what I found out among the that 90% of the Israeli twins are on tranquilizers and antidepressants. And that is, and I have, instead of that, I have forgiven, because they cannot cope with the memories. That would be, would be very, very hard, I think, for a lot of people to cope with memories like that. Well, I think it's not as difficult, because we are, we could teach, and this is, even you, with your radio program, which is heard many places, if you could advocate that forgiveness is not for the perpetrator, but to help the victim. And what kinder thing could we do for every victim but to help them heal themselves? Because you cannot do it for another person. Each person has to do it for himself or herself. But I would like that to dismiss the idea that it's hard, because that just it some way feeds the flames of anger and that it cannot be done. It can be done. It has been done, and it's been done by other people. I am not the only survivor of a tragic event in the world who has discovered that I have power over my tragedy, and that's exactly what I'm trying to say to every survivor. You have power over your tragic past. And you are the only one who can heal yourself. And the solution is free. It costs zero money, so it wouldn't be difficult for anybody to avail themselves of forgiveness. Well, that's a good place to end it. We very much appreciate the, your, your time. Very important message. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's my recent conversation with Eva Kaur, Holocaust survivor and victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. Kaur and her sister, Miriam, 
launched a search for other twins who survived Mengele's experiments. They located 122 individual survivors, and uh, EvaCore founded Candles Holocaust Museum in Indiana. More information on EvaCore and the museum at candlesholocaustmuseum.org. In 1995, she made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty to those responsible for the Holocaust. That act of forgiveness inspired some and angered others. And Ava Kaur will give a talk on forgiveness titled Encountering Dr. Mengele. That is uh, Thursday night, April 11th, 6.30 p.m. on the Utah State University campus, Old Main, room 225, free and open to everyone. It's a part of a symposium series on the Holocaust presented by the USU Religious Studies Program. More information, as I said, at uh, CandlesHolocaustMuseum.org. And there's more of my conversation that we didn't have time to air today, her growing up years in her small village, the arrival of the Nazis, and some interesting talk about how she investigated the bones, which some believed were those of Dr. Mengele. She, by the way, uh, part of her investigation decided they were not. More of that, uh, my entire conversation will be up soon on our website, upr.org, upr.org. Tomorrow on the program, we will uh, have a conversation about a great American poet and uh, Logan uh, native, Mae Swenson. And we'll uh, talk with uh, Catherine Coles, former Utah uh, Poet Laureate, about uh, her latest book, Poetry. Mae Swenson and uh, Catherine Coles, um, that's coming up tomorrow on Access Utah. For producers uh, Addison Pace and uh, Danny Hayes, and uh, producing again today, Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.